Um, I want to first thank Jason for giving me the opportunity to be a part of this session. Can everyone hear me? Okay, great. Uh, so my presentation today builds on an earlier discussion that came from last year's Somali Week Festival. Uh, we had a talk at SOAS about, again, the future of Somali studies. And at the time we discussed, we tried to trace the history of it, and we discussed, you know, its development from anthropological text and linguistic texts to political science uh, and texts in general that detailed Somali peoples and uh, history and cultures. But we also spoke about the rise of this new era of state building in Somalia and its impact on research and researchers like myself, uh, but those as well who are inside uh, Somalia. I would include journalists um, as researchers as well, albeit a different kind of research. Uh, my, presentation, my presentation specifically focuses on the diaspora researcher, and in particular, the female Somali diaspora researcher. <laughs> I'm doing my PhD at SOAS. My research uh, focuses on Somaliland women's participation in peace and reconstruction efforts in the early 1990s. I conducted my interviews using oral history testimonies and focus group discussions Can mainly. Can we get rid of this somehow? Can you do that? Great. So my I conducted my interviews using mainly oral history testimonies and focus group discussions. My introduction, when I began my studies, my introduction into the field of Somali studies when I was an undergraduate was through the writings of the Somali state, and uh, in writings about the Somali state and the collapse in the early 1990s. NGO reports, as well as scholarly research as well, also focused on heavily focused on the humanitarian crisis at the time, with the displacement of many from their homes in Somalia, unlike those of us who were fortunate enough to leave uh, and arrive as refugees to different host countries. Now, research in Somali studies in general uh, is heavily focused on the civil war, before, after, during. Uh, it's also focused on the idea of fragmented states uh, and the collapse of social and political order, as well as how to reconstitute that. Uh, examples include uh, I.M. Lewis's 1993 work, Making History in Somalia, Humanitarian Intervention in a Stateless Society, as well as uh, Abdi Ismail Samatar's 1992 work, Destruction of State and Society in Somalia. Really heavy titles. Um, it was clear from these texts that the post-colonial Somali state was a romantic era that could only be gleaned from those that were either present at the time and writing about it. So it meant that for many of us, the relationship that we might have had or will have with home um, or with the home that our parents reminisced about was peripheral and imaginary. Now doing research on Somali society and politics as a member of the Somali diaspora, the notion of being an insider, outsider, presents its own challenges and opportunities. For this talk, I want to focus on just three themes that contributed, or that I saw were really prevalent throughout most of my field work. I'm, I'm sure there were more, but I thought these three themes would be a really great place to start. Uh, they include representation and responsibility, the memory of the conflict during interviews, and 
being a Somali female researcher doing research on Somali women. So on representation and responsibility. Draw, th 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 this is entirely drawn from my experiences during field work. Uh, but as well, when I got back, there were many of us, uh, we know that the diaspora is present in the Horn and do participate in political and development uh, processes. So sometimes, and some of us are friends, uh, we get together and we discuss and we talk about our experiences. And one common theme that seems to continually come up is that representation is central to examining uh, the insider-outsider relationship. We are familiar, some more than others, of the cultural norms and the Somali social structure, clan, that dictates uh, expectations of behavior, so, uh, sometimes based on gender or age. Uh, we do, from what I've gleaned, the majority of us who have gone back and spent a significant amount of time there is that we do experience a sense of homecoming. But we also experience a sense of alienation simultaneously. <coughs> we are outsiders by having grown up outside of and beyond the conflict and insecurities, many of our own family members who remain had to face. Now, during some of my interviews, I was often told, you know, in an encouraging way, to give an example of that homecoming, I was often told, you understand us because we speak the same language and you are a daughter of this nation. We can speak freely with you. In the same interview, sometimes, depending on what they are recounting, I can also hear, you diaspora researchers, you take from us and do nothing to give back to your country. You're worse than the non-Somali researchers who interview us. It happened. Uh, so Somali researchers doing research on Somali peoples and societies uh, obviously face a different type of burden. It is a delicate balance of building trust uh, and the first entryway into building trust is the kinship ties and clan, uh, and, but also demonstrating respect for the struggle many faced in their daily lives. It meant being aware of my privilege and the need to keep it in check. So not flaunting that I might have multiple passports and can fly in and out at a moment's notice. Now as a Somali researcher, it was implied that I had the capacity to convey their authentic voice. It'll be interesting to see if you've experienced something like that as well, Jamal. Uh, but that was a responsibility that I thought I wasn't prepared for because in many ways I was learning just as much as I was trying to uh, take from them. Now my interviewees were concerned with how they were being represented. They would quote Lewis's work sometimes and they would suggest that he was right in some cases and he was wrong in other cases. Some women I interviewed suggested that I not write about their experiences so negatively as women without power or agency. One of them said to me, when you write about Somali women, you are also writing about yourself. She indicated that my education was a responsibility and I represented other young Somali women with similar uh, goals and hopes. So definitely a huge burden uh, to carry. Now on the memory of the conflict, the impact of the Somali Civil War and the years leading up to it and after it was a, was a starting point for many of my interviews. One of my goals was to highlight the impact of conflict on women's lives, but also the resiliency and the ways in which women uh, began to reconstitute their lives in the aftermath. My own experience of the conflict is undoubtedly different. Um, 
from those who remained and were unable to flee. The Civil War and its aftermath featured throughout our discussions in a way that kept the memory of it, uh, in a way that kept the memory of the conflict at the forefront of the interviewees' minds. So for some, it hardly seemed 20 years or so had passed, and the impact continues to linger. As well, in one of the goals of my research was to include women's narratives, which are largely ignored throughout the larger narrative on state collapse and reconstruction and state building, or even the kinds of states, or the kinds of state building that Somali people in general hope for and desire. And so for some of the women that I'd spoke to, this was the first time that they had the opportunity to really recount their experience being a part of the Civil War, either fleeing as refugees to Ethiopian refugee camps and then coming right back to rebuild, or remaining and providing some type of you know, rudimentary social services uh, during the conflict. Now, when discussing the Somali Civil War, I was seen as the perpetual outsider. My own struggles were dismissed as compared with those who remained or returned to rebuild in Somaliland. During one focus group discussion with uh, female elders, it should be noted that more often than not, my, the fact that I had left was recounted as a, sense, as a source of resentment, that I hadn't stayed and I hadn't experienced it, so I can't know and I can't access that memory. Uh, during one focus group discussion with female elders, while recounting their road back to rebuilding their society, she said to me, this is beyond your understanding because you had to be there to appreciate how far we have come. And absolutely, collecting, as I went on to collect similar narratives, it, w it is difficult not to develop a sense of appreciation for many who had to rebuild in the aftermath of the conflict. But the memory of the Civil War also permeated contemporary clan clashes and was continually referenced to point to historical grievances or justify retaliation. Somali women within the clan structure are known as being in between two clans, the clan you're born into and the clan that you marry. If they have, and oftentimes many of them might be neighboring clans, if they were participated historically in recent memory or even further back, um, in some type of clan conflict, you know, if even anecdotally um, it'll be referenced, you know, oh, your mother's clan did this to your father's clan, or your father's clan did this to your mother's clan. And it was the first time I'd heard about it because my parents had never told me. Um, so residual effects that lingered included social cleavages between neighboring clans that erupted during and after Somaliland's peace process. Now, in dealing with clan rivalries or the stories that I was hearing, I really was pulled in different directions. I began to understand that I had inherited a legacy of violent acts committed on both sides, but I was also expected to choose sides. I was neither an insider nor an outsider. Some of the interviewees, two of them, who knew my clan affiliation treated me with suspicion. Now, it's specific to a particular co uh, context, but it had to do with my father's clan. Um, and in these instances, it was important for me to listen and remain silent and offer very little opinions, merely because I didn't know the history behind, I didn't know the history behind their suspicion. And I tried to rely on some trust-building exercises and just wait for the tension to resolve itself. You know, as an example, I might 
call that person up again and take them out to lunch and pay for the lunch. And it had, we won't be talking about anything to do with my research at all. Now, in terms of the gender dynamics, now the data collection and fieldwork experience were daunting to say the least. Uh, I worked to establish trust, but large, my positionality, I can say, was mainly viewed through my gender. Somali society is highly segregated among men and women, and while women permeate public spaces and are very visible through civil society, government, and informal markets, social behavior is still openly regulated. Gender norms consistent with Somali cultural values and Islamic moral principles regimented the behavior of men and women, but certainly allowed men and boys more freedom than women or girls. Uh, still, you know, while the dress code called for modest coverings, girls and women were, you know, still found ways to be adorned in what they considered the latest fashionable styles. Somali women are really known for colorful dresses. <laughs> my assumptions, given my upbringing, could not reconcile the female leaders and businesswomen and educated young girls in university settings with Somali cultural values and sayings that I was hearing that included proverbs on women's rightful place in the household. As a female Somali diaspora researcher, having been entirely educated in the West, my morals were always subject to scrutiny, and they could be gleaned from either how I dressed or how I spoke. So I would hear, you know, we know you're from the diaspora, even if I looked exactly like them in terms of dress. We know you're from the diaspora because you walk too fast, or you walk with, a, with tea in your hand. And I said, well, where, where do you want me to put the tea? And they said, well, you, you sit. And I said, no, I have things to do. I can't sit. Um, but these little things that I just am not aware of were pulled out. So many of the men I interviewed uh, received me with humor and novelty. They thought, although there were many, although there were a few Somali female PhD researchers before me who had come and done research, not necessarily on Somali women, um, and that they knew of as well and would reference, they still saw me as quite a novelty. Um, I could not participate in exclusively male gatherings or spaces. Likewise, I imagine female-only spaces were difficult for male researchers to participate in as well. Uh, for some of my focus groups with either young professional women or female elders or even entrepreneurs, uh, the, during these discussions, my aim largely was uh, just to observe. I had ask a set of questions and really just uh, observe the dynamic. But in nearly every case, I was pulled into the discussion with participants saying, what's your opinion on this issue? For example, female circumcision or compensation for rape victims. I was reticent to offer my own ideas since I, some of my interviewees kept saying to me, you know, we know you have your feminist ideas, but those are not our values. Or they would say, we know you think we don't, we think you, uh, we know you think we don't have rights as women in Somaliland. And the you that was being referenced was my Western educational background. Now, in trying to think about in trying to think about my positionality, how to write about it, how to make sense of it, how to locate myself, I found, uh, just an, as an example, you know, Gayatri Spivak's writings on hyper self-reflexive development really important, really useful, especially the phrase that she uses, learning to learn. Uh, which is just sort of creating a space for knowledge exchange and understanding, but also recognizing that the field that you go into, the, when you go wherever home is, the field in your respective quote unquote third world country, you should think of the field in the, in the West as a field 
as well. So as a, as a subject to be studied as well. So the power dynamics uh, as a consequence of my privilege cannot be removed from the responses that I received from women, where they asked me to first listen, listen, and then tell their stories honestly. The Somali diaspora is now sought after in, in terms of how they engage with communities in the Horn, politically, economically, and socially. Our experience as researchers, participants, some of us are co-conspirators, uh, echoes a trend, I find, that was first highlighted by Lee Castanelli in the inaugural issue of the Journal of Somali Studies uh, in 2001. He observed that since 1993, Somali diaspora members writing on issues of Somali unemployment, alienation, generational and gender conflicts, and the tensions with citizens of host communities have become a com as common as those on poetry and politics from the horn. Contemporary Somali studies is clearly moving along two tracks. The one focusing on conditions in the horn and the other on conditions overseas. In all likelihood, new notions of Somali family, culture, and identity will emerge from these diasporic studies. With that said, I do believe that my generation of researchers and scholars will be writing from a position rooted in our experiences of home in Somalia, but also of home in the West. Thank you. <laughs>